Hey folks, you're listening to To Know the Land, broadcasting from the treaty territories of the Mississauga of the Credit on 93.3 at the University of Guelph. Maybe you're listening to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you listen to your podcast. It's a show about our connections with the land base, how we interact with the land, how we learn about the land, how we defend the land. My name is Byron, and today I get to talk with Scott LaPointe, Dr. Scott LaPointe, wildlife ecologist who specializes in larger mesopredators like uh, fishers and bobcats and landscape connectivity and all sorts of stuff. And I'm really excited about this one. Um, Scott, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Byron. Um, you've already done a great job with the introduction. But yes, uh, wildlife ecologists uh, do kind of focus, specialize in carnivores like fishers and, and now bobcats. Um, I am the research scientist at a small nonprofit currently called uh, Black Rock Forest. Can you describe Black Rock Forest, what that nonprofit's all about? Yeah, sure, of course. Um, we strive to improve our understanding of the scientific world uh, and the natural world around us. Um, so we have kind of three components, um, research, conservation, and education. And the idea here, what we really try to do is put science and research as the foundation. So any questions that we ask, any uh, activities that we uh, take part in, the idea is to produce some conservation relevant information or to produce educational opportunities from what we do. So we, we somewhat function as a, a field station. And so we have lots of uh, long-term monitoring uh, plans going on but we also facilitate approximately 20 other institutions, uh, academic uh, research, et cetera, who are considered members of our consortium and they come up and do their own research projects and we sort of facilitate their projects. Um, and then of course we have public hiking programs and, and things like that. So we're about 4,000 acres and we try to do an awful lot in here. That sounds awesome, that sounds awesome. What a cool job. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Um, so a bit of backstory. I was up in Algonquin um, with this wildlife tracking apprenticeship that I've been doing for the past four years. And we were out for the day um, following foxes, following river otters. And uh, I think there was a bit of a wolf trail at the beginning of the day. And then <laughs> near the end of the day, we came across a a fisher trail and it was a gallop and it was moving pretty wide like across this uh frozen frozen lake and it's in an area by the wildlife research station where it was, which was sort of like our base camp and we always stop for the bigger predators they're very fun to investigate their trails and we took some measurements and i got a gallop stride length of 41 inches and that's larger than uh mark elbrock's mammal tracks and sign says his tops out at 31 inches and i actually got asked other people there to measure it as well because i thought if it's so big i must be i must be measuring incorrectly and so other folks there with a lot more experience started measuring and everybody came up with the same number 41 maybe a little bit like 41 and a half or something but everybody's generally around there and i said how can this be i asked that question and someone brought up uh an article that they read 
Alexis Burnett had sent out an article to our tracking apprenticeship called Fierce Furry Fishers Are Expanding the Range and Bulk that was published <laughs> in National Geographic. And he was telling me that fishers are getting bigger and they're expanding the range. And we we're wondering if this gallop was a result of a larger fisher. And so I looked up the article. Sadly, it's through a paywall, but I found a way around mm. it. But I read the article and you're, you're, you're quoted in it. And so that's why I reached out because I want to know how, how you and your research have come to the understanding that fishers are expanding their range and getting bigger. What, what, how did you figure that out? And what, what's, what are the signs pointing to that? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, I'm a little jealous of your uh, field experience there. It's been too long for me to find fisher tracks around here. And I've looked for looked pretty closely for a long time. So that sounds pretty mm -hmm. awesome. But um, yeah, I, I think that National Ge Geographic article is probably, if I remember right, uh, summarizing a, a paper that, that we had published maybe around the same time. Um, and well, for starters, it wouldn't be me describing their range expansion. I definitely would have to tip the hat to all the others who would have done a better job of that than I have. But you know, we can look at historical records, um, you know, of, of harvest um, from agencies, et cetera. We can look at museum specimens, particularly skull specimens and their date and locations of collections. Um, and then we can kind of look at where we know there are fishers now and we can show, we can see the range expansion. And this has been pretty well documented and also fairly well facilitated. Fishers, I believe, are the most uh, translocated carnivore in North America, meaning fishers, the number of individual fishers is higher um, than any other carnivore as far as a like a um, assisted reintroduction or assisted translocation. So we know quite a bit about that. And I think it was um, Roger Powell and others that published the paper that really started to, in, in plus one, maybe in 2013, that triggered me thinking a little more about how this fairly elusive, both fairly understood and also still mysterious animal was doing so well. So uh, Roland Kays and Jerry Mallott and I, we started kind of poking around. We, we did some uh, measurements of fisher skulls. Actually, I think the, if I recall, maybe the Royal Ontario Museum may have sent us some fisher skulls or data on uh, fisher skull length. And, um, so you start to paint this picture of where fishers used to be. You see when they were collected and you just start plotting these sorts of things. And particularly in the Northeast, it looks like based on skull length and size that the, this Northeast fisher, you know, Ontario, New York, et cetera, is a bit bigger than uh, the average fisher in say the Pacific coast or British Columbia. Um, how and, and why that is, I don't completely know. We need to do a lot more of that. But, you know, there's, of course, things we can measure like body mass and, you know, and things like this. But we really wanted to focus on the skull because that is really non-changing seasonally and, and things like that. So we think maybe they're um, bigger uh, up here. Uh, they seem to be getting a bit bigger over time but we're not exactly sure why. It would be fascinating to really try to drill into the why of that. I've been curious since I read the paper as to why, and I was wondering about like lack of 
apex predator populations? Are they filling a new niche or, or not a new niche, filling an older niche, but with this new population? Um, is there like a, a bounty of porcupines or other, other prey items, like more squirrels about? And so like mm. that, that could be some, I, I don't even know. I'm not the researcher, but <laughs> I had a lot of questions and wondering about it. Yeah, um, I, I mean, to to maybe try to quickly answer that, I think a reduced um, competition or reduced um, larger predator community like uh, mountain lions or bobcats or something like this could definitely facilitate Fisher Rains expansion. And we did start to posit that idea in that paper that, you know, there might be something going on with a reduced predator community in the East um, particular that might be facilitating Fisher Range expansion. Um, in the very short term, like within the lifetime of a fisher, uh, availability of food and particularly protein um, for a carnivore could certainly have an impact on their size. But when we start looking at skulls, we're starting to ask a longer term question, you know, 100 years or something like that. So there's probably a combination of circumstances that are out there. Maybe it has something to do with snow depth in something like we see in our coyotes where uh, deep snow is really sort of funneled and, and, and helped uh, the coyote evolve to be a little bit larger to accommodate, to deal with that deep snow that we have up here. Um, so there might be uh, combinations of resource availability with prey, like you're talking about, like um, the porcupine is abundant up here. And uh, does that mean that they have a, a higher access to more protein more often? I, I'm not sure, but it'd be a really fascinating question to really dig into. Well, I appreciate the work that you've been doing so far so that we can dig into it a little bit more. Fishers have been coming up a lot here, like, uh, I shouldn't say every weekend we've been out, but a few of the weekends that we've been out with the tracking apprenticeship, we've been coming across Fisher trails, uh, both males and females in, in areas that I'm still surprised by how far south they are comparatively coming in past Orangeville, Ontario and down here. I've even heard people, accounts of people seeing them in neighborhoods, in backyards, in, in Guelph. And when I look at uh, camera traps and uh, uh, just sightings on iNaturalist, they flank the city here that I'm in, in Guelph, Ontario, and the sightings have been fairly close. So it seems like they're expanding the range. And I mean, even just last weekend, my partner was out with some folks and they trailed a fisher to the fisher and the fisher was up high in a cedar tree and then in in an attempt to get away almost fell on my friend's head and then um and then galloped away when they when they came down again they quickly dropped to the ground and galloped away up the hill but it sounds it sounds like they're expanding the range and then maybe it's just luck that we're seeing them more i don't want to say that the population is increasing but do you have any idea about populations are they increasing are they staying similar are they going down or is there a decrease well um 
I'm always hesitant to make a, a call on populations because, you know, like a, a lot of things in ecology, it depends on the circumstances, right? Um, you know, like your example with being out there and seeing animals and, you know, we, we sometimes have to wrestle with a survey effort kind of question. So folks out there with their phones and on iNaturalist and they're seeing these things. So people are out looking for um, fishers and other things more often. So you have to take that in mind, um, you know, and particularly here where I am, we had a massive increase in the amount of people visiting natural areas due to the COVID-19 mm. pandemic. So then, you know, it's a, we had a lot of sightings of rattlesnakes that year. And the question was, you know, where are they all coming from? Well, I think the other question is where are all the people who are observing these animals coming from? So, yeah. so I, you know, the population question is, is interesting. I don't know if I would go out and say our pop, our fisher populations are thriving. Uh, um, I, I think we probably have areas like uh, all over the range where some areas fishers are doing well and, and in some years fishers are not doing so well. And, and I think there's that constant flux and it's a whole food web of complications. Um, I'm not particularly concerned about uh, the status or survival of the species, but I think it's been very interesting to have come from the background where the fisher is uh, revered as a old growth specialist that needs big, healthy, closed canopy forests. And then doing years of research on fishers who are navigating people's backyards, like you're talking about in, in capitalizing on abundant gray squirrels and and moving through these riparian corridors behind the housing development. So. It, it's fascinating. Um, it's really encouraging to see an animal that, you know, may still require these very specific uh, habitat characteristics, but they're, they're surviving in the landscapes that they're given. And I mm -hmm. think, you know, part of what I'm doing right now and part, a big part of the reason I enjoy it is to try to better understand that. Like, how are they navigating these new landscapes? And for places like right here, they haven't been here in hundreds of years. So it's all very, it's very fascinating. Would would be thrilled to be um, behind the eyes of a fisher for at least a couple of days. Yeah, yeah. When you, when you talk about like the habitats that they're moving through, I mean, I found that New York Times article from 2014 where there's a fisher seen on a Bronx street in the morning in the Bronx <laughs> in mm -hmm. New York City. And then I also noticed that you've got a paper coming out um, on fishery ecologies and suburban landscapes. And all this gets me really excited too. It's like, okay, gray squirrels, watch out. You know, like they're are they are they they're gonna be moving, they're they seem highly adaptable and they seem like ranges are shifting. And but then that also brought up other questions because with all this movement, with all this change that can come up for the fishers. I was wondering about, you know, you, you, the other paper suggests that the, they're getting bigger, their, their size is getting bigger. But then I'm, I'm in my follow-up research with that, I came across another paper that you worked on um, that talks about the seasonal changes of skulls in smaller carnivores, um, expanding on what people call, I think it's Daynell's phenomena, where uh, the size of the skulls of some sorex or shrew species are 
grow it in the spring and then shrink in the winter. And I thought this was amazing. It's, it's a phenomenon I'd never heard about. And your work looked at this phenomena in mustelids, smaller mustelids, like Mustela ermina, uh, the short-tailed weasel, or Mustela nivalis, the, the least weasel. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that paper and what your findings were there. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, yes, uh, Dental's phenomenon, uh, that was a pretty fascinating project that I got to, to work on. And that was led by Dina Deckman back at uh, Max Planck Institute for Animal Behavior. Um, basically, you know, you and myself didn't know much about Dental's phenomenon. It's, it's one of these really cool, fascinating stories that just didn't seem to get very much attention. Um, and so basically what the phenomenon is describing is, is you were really close, like I, you did a very good job. Basically, it's this idea of the seasonal skull or our brain or liver, the seasonal change in the size of some organs and bones in some for initially described in shrews, uh, the common shrew in Europe. So the cool part is, is, you know, dental and those following like Pusik after, they saw that in the skulls of these specimens, the seasonal change, and they explored hypotheses as to why, like why, why, you know, first of all, this is mind blowing, you know, almost literally to think that your skull changes seasonally. I mean, how, how the hell does that happen? But yeah. they were starting to like point around and pick around like how, why, what is the driver of this? And I think part of the reason they didn't get a lot of attention or, or it didn't get picked up in like the bigger ecological phenomenon rules and things is that they suffered a little bit because they had measured on different individuals, right? So these are specimens. So the, the, the quibble that folks had, including people like me, I was very critical of the idea, was that you've got even thousands of skulls. But these skulls are collected on a, an animal that was harvested in May. And so we, you couldn't really follow that animal. Like, did it really, did that individual skull change over time or over the season? That, that's really the cool part. That's really the question that needed to be addressed. So a couple of years back, um, I got kind of tasked and asked and I had the opportunity to kind of explore this in animals that have similar characteristics as shrews. And, and what I mean is that the hypothesis is that this is an energy saving mechanism, right? So um, pound per pound, gram per gram, it just costs more energy to keep muscle tissue uh, structure uh, sustained, right? So um, particularly in things like the brain, which is very energy consumptive. So if you are an animal that is active all year, year round, and you have very high metabolisms and your prey availability or your research, or sorry, your resource fluctuates seasonally, and maybe you don't have the physiology to store body fat or otherwise hold on to energy resources somewhere, you would probably benefit from a strategy of reducing energy need when resources are limited. So, you know, other animals have their strategies of torpor or hibernation or body fat or migration and things like that. But when you start looking at an animal like the common shrew who will starve to death in hours if it doesn't get resources, 
you start to kind of ask like, well, geez, how does this thing survive in the winter if insect abundance or insects are non-stationary or something like that? So we are curious if other species like weasels, the least weasel and um, the short tail weasel um, would show something like that. And we really were keen on these small weasels because they have a, a rather whole Arctic distribution. So they're they exist in, in climates that have strong seasonal fluctuations and they're not globally distributed, but they're pretty widely distributed. And you can start to ask, you can A, start to find a lot of specimens and B, start to ask a lot of questions that are related to resources and climate and geography and things like that. So in the end, um, measured a whole bunch of um, museum specimens, had, got to visit a lot of fascinating places. And when we made similar plots that uh, Dental and Pusik described, we started to see similar patterns in the skulls. And the thing that I think really propelled us forward was being able to distinguish a seasonal phenomenon from an ontogenetic phenomenon, like an age-based thing. So I'm pretty sure any of your listeners has ever seen a baby bird trying to keep its head up you're very aware that the head of that baby bird is probably looks too big, right? And so it's cool to think about how most young animals, their their head, their skull is proportionally larger than, than at any other time in your life. So even in humans, over time, your skull gets smaller compared to the rest of your body. So we tried to distinguish this age factor from the seasonal factor. And I think we did a pretty good job of that and showing that there really is something going on here. And, and Dina and those that have kept going with the project are also starting to understand the actual mechanisms for how this is happening at the molecular level. And, and it could be really exciting because it could have real implications for things like osteoporosis, osteoporosis for understanding bone uh, degeneration and possibly bone regeneration. So it was a fascinating project and a really, um, really cool opportunity for me to be a part of. For sure. Like that, I, when I was reading about that and I told somebody at work yesterday and they were, they were also amazed by it. And they're like, how does that work? What, what's going on? A skull yeah. seems like once it's, once it's fused, all the different bones in the skull, once it's fused, it seems like it shouldn't be able to shrink much, you know, like, it, yeah, like, that sounds like there's a problem. Like something <laughs> yeah, it sounds terribly like wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, you know, like, yeah. But I, when I'm reading this, I had so many questions. I was like, can we then predict seasonal temperatures by monitoring skull sizes? Mm. Could like, is there, is there changes in climate that affect it? Um, mm. or not? And then also, to bring it back, have you thought or considered could this same phenomena be found in fissures? Or is it that they're too mm. large that it wouldn't make sense? Right. So um, to, to try to answer that first part, um, I think that this phenomenon is a result of a lot of conditions beyond just temperature. So if you think about climate change and all that that uh, means or brings with it, you might be able to find some sign, but 
I'd hesitate in calling it temperature or, or, or something like that. I think it's more a response to resource availability. And I, I say that rather generally because resource availability could be extreme temperature swings. It, it could be prey availability. It could be um, a good uh, snowpack. You know, it could be a lot of things. And of course, climate change could affect or probably does affect all of those things. Um, I'd be a little hesitant, or as I have been with this project in the past, I'd be a little hesitant to try to dig into a climate change question. It would certainly be complicated, could be really fruitful. Um, but uh, to try to think about other species, I think you could, you know, it's a very kind of narrow suite of characteristics um, that high metabolism otherwise enable to uh, reduce um, energy needs, um, probably a seasonally fluctuating resource availability. And so when we start kind of poking around the, the um, animalia, you know, maybe moles are in there, um, hedgehogs, maybe some other smaller high metabolism carnivores, like, you know, maybe some of the Martins or something like that. But I think once you start getting larger, I think it's going to get really difficult to show. Um, of course, the best case scenario would be to um, recapture individuals over time, right? So, you know, have a a system in place where you can monitor the same individuals over time, recapture them, do a, a an x-ray, you know, periodically once a month or something like that. That would be really fruitful. And costly, but fruitful. <laughs> I, I can see, I can see the, the, the factors that we might get in the way of that. But I, I, I that brings up another question that I've been asking folks. Um, and I didn't send you this in advance, so I don't know if you've got anything in mind, but uh, I've been wondering about a correlation between predators with high metabolisms and socio, socio like how social they are. Because it, it seems hmm. like I think of shrews and I think of like, they aren't very social. I think of some of the weasels and I don't think they're very social necessarily in that, in that, uh, zoological sense of you're defined as social or not based on if you share food with each other. And I know that that's a lot of research is changing that. Um, I think we, Mark Elbrock has found that mountain lions are more social than originally presumed and they share kills. Um, and if, you know, if one mountain lion shares a kill with another mountain lion, that other mountain lion, the second mountain lion is more likely to share a kill with another mountain lion later. So it's like this culture of sharing is developing among the mountain lions. So I know that the research is always changing, but have you noticed that in your experience or in your, in your, in your learning journey that, that uh, animals with high metabolism, especially like predators and carnivores, um, are a bit more antisocial. Huh, that that that's a good question. I um, I'm kind of inclined to agree with you that it just seems like to be social. And I guess if we're thinking about being social as a sense of 
um, a benefit to being around other individuals of the same species and maybe not simply tolerant of another individual being around would be kind of an interesting question because I would imagine the sociality of it probably stems from either abundant resources or, or maybe uh, beyond this, not only, or um, a benefit for the social dynamic. So like, you know, we're thinking of uh, canids or wolves versus the cats, right? Um, so, I mean, it's kind of hard for me to imagine a scenario where shrews would benefit from being social because they, you know, they, they're, they're pretty consumptive and, you know, they otherwise cannot store body fat or anything like that. So, you know, I, I don't know, Byron, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I know fishers are presumably quite um, solitary, but, you know, every once in a while you see a pair together um you know tracks or uh i've had you know camera trap sequences of a female you know eating uh, some carrion with a male kind of staying nearby and watching and almost looking like sentinel behavior standing on his hind mm. legs while he looks around um, are those siblings or or not i don't know is it social is you know is it social i i don't know but um yeah i, I don't know it, it's an interesting question uh let's go write that grant and see what we can find yeah yeah. Well, maybe that can be a work, some of the work with the Hudson Highlights Highlands Wildlife Connectivity Project, looking into like not only who's using the spaces, but how they're using the spaces and if they're using the spaces together. Um, it seems like a neat project. I'm really interested in, in connectivity and access for wildlife. And I'm always considering like, down to the minute scale, we've been cutting down trees at the forest where I work, and I've been asking, oh, can we keep these ones up? Because just to make things more accessible for a lot of, like, the animals that we use, the dead trees. But your work really centers, I think, from what I'm reading, centers around, like, access through larger landscapes interrupted by human development and maybe even specifically roads. Um what 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 sort of things are you looking for or are you looking to to change or 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 bring bring awareness to in the work of landscape connectivity yeah um basically i i think the background here to this project where it comes from is that we have a 4000 or nearly 4000 acre preserve and that seems like a lot of green space but that's probably one male bobcat territory. Um, maybe there's two females in there at the same time kind of thing. It, it probably is not enough for a male fisher. So you, you look at your landscape nearby and you know, you're, you're doing your best to manage your, your parcels, your property for biodiversity. But you know, what happens longer term, right? Can we, um, can we, manage our landscapes for longevity, right? So if, if for here at Black Rock Forest, you zoom out a little bit and you see what your neighborhood looks like and you've got roads and infrastructure and development and uh, some of that, you know, it's all necessary and needed. Um, some of that development are, you know, four lane, six lane highways. So when we kind of zoom out, we start to ask like, well, we're doing a lot of great stuff in here, but how, what are we doing to facilitate 
the the resiliency of this landscape and and facilitating like our our uh, abilities to um or that wildlife's abilities to move freely about the landscape you know movement is a this fundamental characteristic of life you know animals everything needs to move and move freely successfully so the project kind of evolved into this question of starting to look outside of our preserve and really trying to put numbers actual quanti quantify movement quantify connectivity and the the targets the the species that were of interest initially were fishers um so i felt like i knew something about them and then as we started poking around we found fishers to be extremely rare um in fact um it seems that the only record of fisher here in our 4000 acres was from two sort of coincidental camera traps from about 10 years ago each with just one sighting of a fisher at one time two different fishers a male and a female so we should have fishers here but we don't and it seems that no matter what we do in our 4000 acres if fishers can't get in here what are we doing right so we're missing a pretty important component of our landscape so over time the project has kind of evolved and we started to look at some of these major potential obstacles in, you know, in any landscape, one of the elephants in the room are the big highways. And luckily, you know, the folks that are running the highways, they're receptive to these ideas. So we started, you know, expanding our surveys, you know, we use camera traps to find carnivores nearby. And we, we start putting them on properties on the other side of the highway. And we started running live traps to catch bobcats and fishers and things like this. And over the last few years, we're starting to paint a bit of a picture that shows that what we find on one side of the highway is not exactly what we find on the other. And then we've been putting these GPS collars that record locations every two minutes on some of these carnivores. And we look at how they navigate along or around or adjacent to some of these throughways. And we're starting to find spots where Unfortunately, they really like to cross right over top of it. So there, there's something about that particular very narrow spot of the throughway that they like to cross over top of. And unfortunately, some of these animals are crepuscular and that also coincides with uh, rush hour traffic. So it's definitely concerning. There's some you know, tunnels and, and bridge spans along this kind of section of the highway we're really focused on. And we're just trying to understand who approaches, do you go through, are there different species and things like that. And as we zoom out a little bit farther and try to take that bigger picture of the whole phenomenon out there, we're starting to see that there is a problem. But luckily, there's some pretty well-established ways of fixing this kind of a problem. And things like the infrastructure bill and the wildlife crossing pilot program are ripe for funding to try to address this and try to address it with by increasing connectivity. And for us, that's maybe potentially uh, New York State's uh, first wildlife overpass. So we're, we're trying to use data, like baseline data and justify the need for improved connectivity. And we're hoping to position ourselves for a longer term project that really tries to fix it um really tries to do something about it and then hopefully 
be able to quantify the results and and whatever we learn, whether we did a good job or not, to be able to transfer that knowledge to others who maybe want to try something similar. So the project is rooted in a particularly mammalian ecology and behavior, but hopefully we can do something that facilitates the movement of all things, whether it's our recreational hikers that also have a severed uh, connection with these uh, state protected areas, or the salamanders and insects, and maybe even to some degree, some rare plants. So we'll see. It's a big project. Uh, we have a lot of partners, but it's also hopefully a long-term project. And we'll see what happens. It sounds great. Like, I mean, you look at a map and you can see how much, you know, the roads just run through everything. And what a difficult, you know, it's like a maze or or like a series of traps to try and navigate. I think of I think of those action movies where people are moving through the museum and there's all these lasers everywhere that they've got to duck around. And it must feel like that for some of those mammals to navigate through. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, absolutely. And I, I have to say that, like, this has been part of the cool part with these, like, locations every two minutes. To, to your point, like, to your imagination, we're getting locations of, like, a bobcat who approaches a throughway. It hangs out. It goes left. It goes right. It goes north. It goes south. And, you know, and eventually it's a little, it looks like weaving and bobbing, right? And then bam, it's decided for some reason at some time, it's going to run across the throughway right there. Mm. Yeah, I would love to see the video of that, like consideration, looking both ways, listening, maybe step out, step back, you know, like, yeah, I would love to see that because there's probably so much going on and so much, uh, so much thought. I, 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 I both hate to and love to anthropomorphize. So just wonder how those animals are considering this process of crossing the road and what 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 they have to be aware of. There's a, I think it was a photo on one of your websites of, or one of the, either the Twitter or maybe your actual website um, of you standing under a, or beside a culvert and right above you on the snowy hill is a big transport truck going by. And just to think of that, 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 connection being lost and then you know with your work that connection being gained again sounds really awesome and I'm, I'm stoked to hear uh more of your research as it comes out so i can i want to see what's happening i want to see how, how it's working out for these animals so yeah thanks me too looking forward to seeing what happens i i have a number of colleagues both that i work with formally and folks that i track with a lot that when they heard that I was going to be interviewing you, I got a lot of questions on fishery ecology and, and natural history. And I was wondering if I could sort of throw some at you and you can answer whatever you want or whatever you know. And um, that way I can, we can try and appease their, their curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll do my best to answer questions. Yeah, that's great. That's great. The first, the question that came up actually twice was talking about the gestation period of fishers because uh, we, we delayed implantation is so interesting and different compared to humans. And then uh, the other question about that was, do they actually breed 10 days after they give birth? And 
I know that might be different from like the work that you're doing, but do you know anything about uh, the the pregnancies and gestation periods of the of the fishers? Yeah, uh, a little bit. I'm definitely no expert in fisher physiology, um, but um, yeah, the delayed implantation is pretty rare in mammals. I think you know. 2% of mammals or something like that um, exhibit this and do this. Um, and it's, it doesn't seem very well conserved across any, uh, or, or isolated within any particular group. Like bears do it. I think like um, roe deer do it, but they're like the only cervid that does this. Um, uh, you know, marsupials do it, but it's, it's, it's pretty neat. Um, and, and yeah, they, they do breed almost immediately after giving birth. And it's actually pretty fascinating and from our point of view, but it seems extremely stressful for the female. So I've, I've had the, the uh, pleasure in the past of doing telemetry and like kind of tracking a female to where exactly she was in a tree. And this was denning season. So it was very important to know where she was probably giving birth. And as I approached the tree that she was in and her tree cavity, um, you know, really, you know, the key here is not to harass, but it's very important to figure out exactly what is the cavity that you're in, because that is super vital for us to know. Um, she started making all kinds of vocalizations and fishers are generally fairly quiet outside, but I think she heard my approach, my crunching through the leaves or whatever, and she was just on high alert. And we did confirm later that she had given birth in there and we were able to climb the tree and count kits and things like this. So it's fascinating. And, um, you know, I understand the, the uh, benefit of doing it and, and having kits born at a time of year where there's a, you know, more abundant resources than normal and things like this. But this whole phenomenon um, dictates where the females choose to have their natal dent. It dictates the tree cavity specifically and even the characteristics of it because the males probably don't know if those kits, the, that offspring are theirs or not. And being territorial animals, the males seem to be making some kind of calculation, not to anthropomorphize too much, but some sort of assessment that if I kill these kits, it's better for me because they're probably not mine. Right. So there is a reported infanticide in fishers. So the female has to find these cavities that serve her. Right. And not a male. So the male is twice the size on average of a female. So she has this very specific tree cavity opening that basically only she can squeeze in and out of. And it precludes the male from getting in. So you know, she has her kits in there. She is ready to breed in a week or two or something like that, but she also doesn't want the male around her kits. So it's, it's, is really another reason why I'm, I find fishers so fascinating. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's again, so different from our, our life cycles. And so I'm, I'm always curious about that. I thought that was a great question. That was put forward by my friends, Alexis and Alistair. Alistair was the one that the fisher almost landed on the other day. Um, <laughs> but I was, my friend Tamara asked, uh, have you read the book 
Winter of the Fisher by Cameron Langford and Does It Hold Water? And if anybody hasn't read this, it's it's a, a story through the eyes of a fisher, fictionalized account, but some of the natural history in it seemed like well put, but I mean, I'm no fisher expert or researcher. So Scott, what do you think? Have you read the book? Yes. Uh, so this is a, a personal confession is that I am terrible at finishing books. And I have started Winter of the Fisher, um, and I'm about a third of the way through it, but it sits on my nightstand with a bookmark in it, along with many other books. But yes, um, it's fictionalized. I don't know. Um, I'm a little bit dubious of some of it, of some of the story, but there's a lot of it that I kind of hope is true, right? Because it's a, it's a pretty cool story. And I guess now after this interview, man, I feel pretty guilty. I, I guess I'm going <laughs> to. I'm gonna have to try to finish it now. I thought it was good. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't age well. I think some of the characteristics of, indiv- of indigenous people in in the book, I think, are a little bit dated, and that's that's you know to be expected with a lot of our work. I'm sure my work will be dated in a few years, but I appreciate what the perspectives are on the fishers. So. I would I would endorse if people are interested in fishers, if only to mythologize to get us interested. I think it was a good book. And don't worry about not finishing books. I, I have that same problem. Um I was wondering about home ranges and territories. Uh, do the how many males are what, what do they need for their home range and how many females may occupy that same space? And I think you sort of said that the four thousand acres um of the hudson highlands project may be enough for one male fisher no that was bobcats what what is what do the male and female fishers need for home ranges and territories right so um first the the sort of easiest kind of generally accurate answer here is that generally male territories or home ranges however you want to define them are usually about twice the size of females. Um, that is probably a combination, stems from a combination of both needing more resources, but also the interest of the male to find kind of as many females as possible. So um, males generally do not tolerate other males and their their home ranges. Um, females, there seems to be a little bit more overlap uh, between females and um, I'm not certain off the top of my head, whether that is generally the case across females in general or mother offspring tolerance, I, I'm not sure. But the actual sizes vary quite a lot depending on where the study or where the, the uh, territories have been measured. So like um, you might find a male territory estimate somewhere between eight square kilometers to as many as like 90 square kilometers. So um, that's a lot of variation and in similar scales for females, maybe something like four to 30 square kilometers. But, um, you know, it depends a lot on where they are. Um, and even to some degree on how that size was measured, both in terms of recording the animal's location, but also the metric that we use to measure uh, home range or space use or territory, etc. So, they 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 can occupy a lot of area. Um, 
it's kind of fascinating. Um, my past work around Albany, New York, territories are extremely small. Um, I, I believe, although I don't recall publishing this data, I, I believe that they're some of the smallest that had been ever reported. And that might be due to super abundant prey items like cottontail rabbits or eastern gray squirrels. I'm not sure. But yeah, space use in fishers is pretty fascinating. Probably one of the things we know the most about, but also ask you know, the most questions about. Real quick one from Alistair again was, if fishers are one of the animals that can predate or commonly predate on porcupines, have you encountered fishers like maybe in your live traps or anything with quills and uh, like stuck in their muzzles or anything like that? And uh, just how how much of a negative impact on on the fisher's house could this be? Um, I personally have not had that pleasure. I have not handled a fisher that, to my knowledge, was sporting a porcupine quill mustache or anything like it. Um, I'm trying, yeah, sorry, I'm trying to think about that. No, I don't think I've ever seen that. I've seen some evidence of fishers sort of investigating porcupines. Um, I know folks who have come across what appear to be a, a, a fisher site, a site where a fisher has killed a porcupine. Um, but uh, I, you know, personally, I haven't seen it. But uh, the other part of your question about what risk, basically, I think, uh, does the predating on a porcupine pose to a fisher? Um, I think I had heard, um, and you know, citation needed here, but there was an idea, or or maybe more, that the fisher seems pretty well suited for digesting or. Uh, for lack of other words, dissolving porcupine quills in their their skin. I I don't recall many observations, although Roger Powell's book, The Fisher, might have an account in there of a fisher succumbing to internal bleeding or some other damage from a quill, maybe in the abdomen of the fisher or something like that. But I think, you know, they're obviously super well suited for preying on porcupine. I think uh, an adult porcupine is a massive pile of protein and calories for a fisher and that most other animals aren't going to even bother to try to tackle. Um, so they for sure do prey on porcupines. And so I, I almost assume because of that, and I don't like assuming, but I almost assume that because of that specialty, there's the risk um, from a quill beyond something obvious like in an eyeball or something. It's I assume it's fairly low, but um, I'm not sure. That's a good question. So I just looked up that Roger Powell book, and sadly, it's out of print and quite expensive. But that I'm now that's that's my next find. I, I'm so lucky I, I get to visit the University of Guelph Library because maybe it's housed there. But yeah, that's it, a resource. That's a resource we need more of, a, a book dedicated to the ecology and natural history and maybe even management. Yeah, I, I've, learned a, I've learned a lot from Roger. Uh, I had the fortune of having him on my PhD committee, and I look, use that book as a reference constantly. 
And I, I get to often refer to Roger as, uh, oh, Roger, he's this fascinating fisher biologist, carnivore biologist. You know, he he wrote the book on yeah. fishers. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I'd be happy. You should find a copy. Some yeah. of it, you know, they're, they're, he, Roger would probably admit there's some updating needed, but it's a really useful background. Every graduate student in fisher ecology should have a copy and read it. Scott, that's that's the end of the hour. I gotta, I, we gotta end this. But I'm so grateful for you taking the time to, to be on the show to answer all these questions, and and for the work you're doing too. Because with these cool animals, like when 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 I talk to people, I'm talking about these these sexy megafauna, and like I I include fishers in that because whenever we go out tracking and trailing, it's really awesome to find these predators trails and then to find something even more elusive gets people really stoked and it's like a gateway to the rest of wildlife ecology it's, it's a gateway drug and you're hooked once you follow the the fisher you're like oh yeah this animal is capable of of being so ferocious so powerful i just want to keep going and to have people like yourself who are out there doing the work of of making habitats safer for the fishers, researching the fishers' ecologies so that folks like me and, and my colleagues and my friends and, and the public can know a little bit more about this beautiful animal. It's so important and it's so good. So thank you so much for doing that work. Um, I'm flattered. Uh, it's my pleasure. And uh, fishers, I could talk about fishers anytime. Um, I owe a lot to the species, so it, it's really my pleasure. Again, a big thanks to Scott LaPointe um, for putting in the work of researching these fishers so that we can all know more about these amazing animals that live around the areas where we may live or live in the areas where you may live and maybe even expanding their range to your suburban or urban backyard. What a cool species to know about that existed in, in my area for a long time and then was extirpated and now maybe moving their way back in. It's always exciting to know that these animals are coming back to areas that they've historically been in, but not only that, they might be getting bigger. And so that's, that's pretty awesome to hear about. And like the other research around Daynell's phenomena and, and uh, how these animals are increasing their skull sizes and then decreasing their skull sizes and then increasing again. It's just mind-blowing and pretty special to learn about. So I'm grateful for Scott and all of his collaborators that are doing this work to teach the public and teach others about it. If you want to check out his website, you can go to scottlapointe.weebly.com or Google his name, Scott Lapointe, L-A-P-O-I-N-T. Um, yeah, he's got a lot of papers out there. If you look up Google Scholar, um, you can probably find a few there. And it seems like 
he's really open to sending papers on his website. If all these lists of papers that he's helped author, you just email him and he'll probably send you a copy. So that's really awesome. I love it when folks do it. Make this knowledge so accessible and easy to get at. If you want to learn more about the show, you can always check out www.tonowtheland.com. And there's lots of blog posts, lots of previous shows on there. If you want to email me, it's to know the land at gmail.com. Any comments, feedback, critique, whatever, that's always welcome. I appreciate it. Also, if you want to make a donation to the show, we got a Patreon account, we got uh, a PayPal account. Those always help. I appreciate that. To know the land.com forward slash donate. And I always forget there is an Instagram account at to know the land at to know the land. So check it out on Instagram as well. That's it. That's all. Take care.